We're in the midst, as a church, of the series on worship and witness from the book of Revelation. This is a series about the practices that we do as the Christian church in worship, and we believe that those practices form us to be a certain kind of people before a watching world, to have a certain kind of worship and a certain kind of witness. Here's where we've been so far. We, we started two weeks ago with the first C, called, and I said it was kind of like a holy dinner bell. It was kind of like my mama calling me back home from the wilderness journeys of playing behind my house as a child, where she would say, Joel, come in for dinner. And we said the call to worship is a call to come remember who you are, where you belong. It's a call that goes out to every woman, man, boy, and girl who is created by God as a worshiper, to come before the holy, holy, holy one who sits upon the throne. And though the call goes out to every single person, we don't respond as we ought to. Because our hearts are broken by sin, the relationship has been ruptured. And so what we said is God gets off the throne to come seek and save a people for himself, to gather a people to himself. And so we come into worship with empty hands and empty stomachs, waiting to, be, to receive and be blessed by God. And so we lift our hands in praise and thanksgiving. And then last week we got to the second C, which is the cleansing, to be cleansed. And if we move that uh, metaphor forward of being called home for supper, to be cleansed is to wash your hands before you sit at the table. And we said that, there, that though God has made a world beautiful and good and full of shalom, right relationship between humanity and God and humanity and one another and humanity and the creation, there was a deep rupture that has happened with sin. And that it has polluted not only every creature, but the whole ecosystem, chains of relationships, generations, past, present, and future. But Jesus has come to absorb the mess of this world, to accomplish a great cleanup clean operation. And so in his death and resurrection, we have the power to be cleansed. And he's given us a new peace, a new shalom, which has created a new community, a new family. And so that's where we get to the third C today, consecrated. That's an old biblical word. We don't use it as much anymore. But consecrate means to set apart, to be made holy. And what we believe is by God's grace, he has made a new creation, a new community, the church as a family, which is going to, uh, if we carry that image even further, when you come in for supper and you wash your hands, uh, the first thing you do is you kind of position yourself around the table and acknowledge the fact that you are part of a family, the church. So let's pray before we get into this theme and ask God for help. Oh, Father, Son, and Spirit, I recognize, especially in this moment, I just, we are a needy people. We are dependent upon you to give us every gift and to feed us your food. We ask that we would not, we, we ask that we believe that we don't live by bread alone, but we live on every word that comes from your mouth. Give us a hunger for your word. Help it to transform us today. Father, lead me and guide me by your spirit as I preach your word. If there's something I prepare that I don't need to say, make it plain to me. Help the word be what we need today. Help us in your name. Amen. Family. What a, what a loaded word, right? I'm reminded of that prevalent and, of course, uh, true idea. Everyone knows you can't choose your family, but you can choose your friends. 
All right, and the impetus behind that quote is that sometimes family is complicated, right? Sometimes we don't know how to deal with the fact that we are intimately connected to a group of people with whom we have a shared history of pain and shame and anger and conflict and avoidance and bitterness. You know what I'm talking about? And so, so thus the iterations and the adaptations of that phrase that I have found, which, of course, you can't choose your family, but you can ignore their phone calls. Or you can't choose your family, but you can choose your therapist. Oof. Or a scout and hop, Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. You can't choose your friends. Sorry, you can choose your friends, but you sure can't choose your family. And they're still kin to you, no matter whether you acknowledge them or not. And you look right silly when you don't. See, God's interested in this idea of family, too. After all, he makes himself known to us as Father. And he uses, and he calls us uh, sons and daughters, children of God. He uses this concept of new birth into a new family. The scripture calls Jesus the groom and his church the bride. Paul, in our uh, word of assurance today, said, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're saints and members of the household of God. We call this place, of course, the house of God, the church. We are the body of Christ. We are to know each other as brother and sister in the Lord. We commune with uh, each other as a family at the Lord's Supper. And I think it is significant, of course, that that's the dominant metaphor that the New Testament uses to speak about you and I as the church. Because it is to reframe how we think our, of through our ultimate identity. It's to rethink how we think through culture, ethnicity, conflict, shame, pain, anger. We are supposed to think of it in the context of an uncommon family of God, united in Jesus and as soon as you become a Christian, whether you like it or not, you are a member of this family. You can ignore it all you want, but you can't escape it. So Eugene Peterson says, the question is not, am I going to be a part of a community, but how am I going to live in this community of faith? He says, God's children do different things. Some run away from it and pretend the family doesn't exist. Some move out and get an apartment on their own from which they return to make occasional visits nearly always showing up for the parties and bringing a gift they sh to show that they really do hold the others in fond regard. Some would never leave a dream of leaving the family, but they cause others to dream it for them, for they're always criticizing what is served at the meals and quarreling with the way the housekeeping is done and complaining that the others in the family are either ignoring them or taking advantage of them. And some determine to find out what God has in mind by placing them in this community called a church, learning how to function in it harmoniously and joyously, and growing in the maturity that's able to, to share and exchange God's grace with those who otherwise might be known to us as nuisances. And so I'm, I'm bringing out immediately the hard part of being a family, this consecrated people called the church, because in many ways our experience with the church actually mirrors our experience with our earthly families, right? It's complicated to find love and shalom and unity among a diverse group of people. And that's the perplexing part about being the church, that Jesus doesn't just call a, a perfect, well-behaving group of people together and say, kumbaya, here you go, you're a happy family. No, he calls a people that are still marred by sin, that are still selfish, and says, I am giving you my spirit. I have given you my power to be cleansed. And somehow we on earth are made into the church, the body of Christ, a fragrance of life and love and beauty and aroma to the watching, to the watching world. So church is broken and church is beautiful. 
like so many of our families. So I want to take the next two weeks to look at this middle C and what happens within this middle C in the worship service, which is baptism, how you come into the family of God, creeds and scripture, the stories of the family, what we believe, offerings, prayer, community, even announcements as the way we live together and have a witness in the world. So we're going to look at three aspects in our text today of what it means to be consecrated. The mark The mosaic, all right, someone say mosaic, (laughs) and the message. The mark, the mosaic, and the message. So first, the mark. John says, after this, I, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called out with a loud voice, saying, don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God upon their foreheads. Revelation is getting weirder, okay? I started with uh, two easy chapters, four and five, relatively easy. But Revelation from this point forward gets a little weirder. All right, so I'm going to try to give us a little bit of interpretive framework, just a little bit. Revelation 6 follows after Revelation 7, and we were in Revelation 5. uh, Sorry, what did I just say? Revelation 7 follows after Revelation 6, yes. Two weeks ago was Revelation, last week was Revelation 5. All right, so the lamb opens the scroll. Remember that? Remember that? And when he opens the scroll, what is revealed in Revelation 6 are scenes of like cataclysmic judgment, God's visitation upon the earth, God's redemption of his people on the earth. And I think, uh, I think it's going to help us if I introduce the main characters of Revelation uh, going forward here. In one sense, we've already seen the main characters. That's the holy, holy, holy one who sits on the throne, the lamb who sits at that one's right hand, and the spirit sent out into the earth. That's the triune God who you and I worship. But also, Re- Revelation reveals a parody of that. Uh, it doesn't call it this, but it's kind of like an unholy trinity, if we worship the holy trinity. And that is revealed in Revelation 12 and 13 as the great serpent from of old, the dragon, the devil himself, Revelation 12. And then in Revelation 13, the beast from the land and the beast from the sea, two beasts. And what most interpreters think is that, this is, that these two beasts are the Roman Empire and emperor and all uh, that are seeking to promote the worship the divine status of the whole empirical power structure. But empires come and empires go, rulers go and rulers go, uh, come and rulers go, and Christians live under different kinds of rulers. And so basically, Revelation reveals that God will hold accountable. He will bring to account any idolatry that any nation or group of people commits when it elevates material abundance, military prowess, technological sophistication, racial pride, or any glorification of the creature over the creator. All the powers and principalities that you and I live among. And so God, and so Revelation uh, talks about God's judgment upon these things. Whether they be nations or authorities or corporations or institutions or structures or bureaucracies, God will bring these things, hold these people and things to account. And so in the midst of this, there is the church, the people of God. And so what Revelation reveals is that this unholy trinity, uh, the Satan, the dragon, and the, the beast from the land and sea, seek to harm the church to keep it from bearing a faithful witness and worship in the world. And they seek to give it the mark of the beast. Maybe you've heard that out of the book of Revelation, the mark of the beast. 
And so the suffering that results from this cosmic battle that you and I and that Christians then are involved in is called the tribulation. And so John, when he introduces himself at the beginning of the book, he calls himself a partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the perseverance which are in Jesus. And so the church throughout Revelation and the church today are called to be faithful witnesses, which in the, in the Greek word, in the Greek language is the word martyr. All of us are called to be martyrs, whether we die for it or not. And so, at the end of Revelation 6, I'm sorry, I just got to do a little Bible study with you guys. At the end of Revelation 6, it pictures the ultimate day of judgment coming when the Lamb will come to renew and judge the earth. And the question is, is asked, who shall be able to stand in the day of judgment? And so Revelation 7 is the answer to that question. Those who have the seal of God upon their foreheads. So, this image of seal and sealing, we talked about it last week. So picture not a uh, rather adorable, diverse group of semi-aquatic marine animals or uh, the guy who sang Kiss from a Rose on the Bay, but picture rather uh, wax being poured upon something and a ring sealing it up with a name of the cinder sealed into the wax. And so this image of sealing upon the forehead, as you might have guessed it, it's not new to the Bible. It comes first uh, in Exodus 28, when Aaron becomes the first high priest of Israel. God tells them to make a gold plate and to put it on Aaron's forehead and to inscribe on that gold plate, guess what? Holy to the Lord, consecrated, set apart. In Revelation 14, we're told that the foreheads of God's people have God's name written upon their foreheads. And so it's an image of ownership, of protection, of holiness, and, though, and so it makes us think, of course, about baptism, because baptism is the image for what it means to be part of the people of God, because God gives his diverse family one unifying trait, one unifying marking. And what is that? For Christians all over the world, any Christian, regardless of uh, ethnicity or nationality or the amount of money they have in their bank account or where they come from, what is the unifying mark? It's baptism, where water is poured over our heads, or we are immersed and we have the name of God, the Father, Son, and the Spirit pronounced over us. That's been the case throughout the history of the church. It's what brings you into the church, into this community, into this family. Paul says, don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried with him in baptism. We were risen up with him in the power of his resurrection. So we as a people are baptized into Christ Jesus. He's our peace. He's our unity. And we're marked with him in his death and his descent into the pain of this world. And in his rising, new life, new hope, resurrection power. And I, and I know baptism is a contentious topic, especially here in America. And that's often because we've made baptism to be about an individual's de declaration of faith and their own understanding. But baptism is fundamentally about God's declaration upon his people, that he will be faithful to his people, that he will bring people into his covenant community. And so we mark our children out as baptized Christians, and we teach them to, to grow up as Christians. We don't teach them to grow up as non-Christians. We teach them to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And we wait for our children to grow up into their baptism, just as we wait for ourselves to actually grow up into our baptism, to put on the marking of Christ. And so, you know, we're saying, what are we saying if we don't uh, baptize our babies? I'm sorry, I got to get into this just a little bit. What, what are we saying? We're saying that in some way they aren't in relationship to the church and to the community. 
that God is somehow not near to our infants, but we use symbols and words that our infants can't understand to communicate stuff to them. And God uses symbols and words that our infants can't understand to communicate to them his love, his faithfulness. And so we help our children as a covenant community grow up into this family. And so we wait for the work of the Holy Spirit. And so the image builds out further in the New Testament where the scripture says, in Christ you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So people of God, we have received the seal. It's not first about who you are, it is first and foremost about whose you are. You have been sealed. And what does that bring about in our lives? But comfort. Comfort. We can say that whatever trial or temptation or oppression or hard calling God has put upon my life, whatever fear or opposition comes my way, I am one ultimately protected and one who ultimately belongs to God and to this family called the church. And so when you wake up in the morning, people of God, you are to remember your baptism. Maybe it's the first time you interact with water for the day pouring it from the faucet, putting it in your hands. You are to remember you are one washed in the sun. You are one called to go with Jesus into the places of pain, to descend with him, dying to yourself, being near to the marginalized, being near to the afflicted and oppressed as our Savior was, to be a friend of sinners as our, as our Savior was, to remember you're not your own. But there's also a caution here because, as I said, God is not the only one putting his mark on people. There are cosmic forces and satanic evil forces, says the book of Revelation, that seek to put their mark on us as well. Because we aren't just hardwired as worshipers who must worship. We're hardwired as servants who are seeking to serve something. Bob Dylan said, you got to serve somebody. Jesus Christ said, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. That's what Jesus said. So the book of Revelation would tell us that there are many things to seek to, that seek to mark us. Our own selfishness, money, pride, fame, national identities, nationalism. Behind all of these are forces that are opposed to God that seek to exalt the creature over the creator. So we got to ask ourselves when we think about baptism, when we think about the ceiling, where is it that we have placed more allegiance to our own selves, to groups, to political parties, to nation states than we have to the lamb and to his kingdom? To comfort, to material abundance, to greed than to the lamb? Where are we co-opted, syncretized, idolatrous? The book of Revelation asks us to, to answer these questions and to ponder them. But you see, here's the thing about the mark. You ain't the only one who has it. You have been brought into a great mosaic, a grand mosaic of family, the sealed ones. Well, who's in the family? The passage takes an even more bizarre turn. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, 12,000 from the tribe of Judah, and so on. I'm not going to read them all again. You can go home and memorize them as I trust you will. <laughs> Two weeks ago, if you remember, I said in Revelation, it, this Revelation is using imagistic and imaginative language. And it likes numbers, okay? John likes numbers. He likes to work with numbers. The number 12 is an important number because there were 12 tribes of Israel. And so what John is basically saying here is that it's the fullness 
of God's redemptive work in Israel. 12,000 from the 12 tribes. Well, what's 12,000 times 12,000? It's 144,000. It's really not that mysterious. John is just basically saying that in heaven, as, as worship uh, happens in this scene, there are the mothers and the fathers of our faith from of old, from the tribes of Israel. Paul said that we are all sons of Abraham. You realize that God has not changed his ways, that he is committed to a people. And so we honor our ancestors of the past. We join with them in worship. That's what basically this text is saying. That's why we read the scriptures together of the Old Testament. We don't uh, defame the Old Testament. We, we embrace it. That's why we say creeds together, because the creeds connect us to a, a group of people in the past. And it gives a kind of a perspective on the present. Because I don't know if you've ever hung out with people who are older than yourself. I'm sure all of you have. I used to, uh, and I haven't gotten connected to a retirement community, a nursing home here in, in D.C. yet, but I always used to do ministry in nursing homes throughout, um, throughout my ministry life so far. And I love just sitting with people in nursing homes because you gain this wisdom and perspective upon your present moment when you hear of the successes and the failures. Some, find some things that are different in your times and some things that haven't really changed at all. So Marshall Duke, he was this uh, psychologist at Emory, Emory University. And what he was trying to look at back in the 90s is what helps children, what helps families stay together? And what helps children really stay uh, a part of a family is what he was asking. And what he found was this surprising thing. He said, when children know more about their extended family, about the family from their past, uh, they feel more secure in their family. They are able to face challenging times as a family together if they're connected to the past. He found that basically families tell three narratives about themselves. And two are not so helpful and one is more helpful. One is called the ascending narrative. He said families tell this story of we came here with nothing and now we're doing great and you get to inherit that. You know, it's kind of this kind of triumph triumphalistic narrative. And I find that in the church, sometimes people tell that narrative too. They basically said, you know, all the other churches down the street, all the other churches around us, they're, they're kind of screwing it all up. We're going to do things right. We're going to be the right kind of church. We're going to go back to the early church. You know, you're going to be part of this victorious community. But that is often dishonoring our past. It's dishonoring other parts of our family, and it's ultimately kind of arrogant. And then another narrative that families tell is the descending narrative. Sweetheart, we used to have it all, but then we lost everything. And basically, it's all hopeless. And sometimes people tell this story about the church, too. They said, the church is so jacked up, you shouldn't even be a part of it anymore. You should give up on the church because we've been hurt and burned before. And that's not a true narrative either. Because our, our, our family, the church, has, is, part of a, is part of a community that has messed up, but also part of a beautiful community. So that's where this third narrative comes in. And what the studiers found, what the psychologists found, that, is that children who were told this narrative about their family, the oscillating family narrative, they felt more able to, chase, uh, to face challenging times, to face hard times as a family. And it goes something like this. Let me tell you, we've had our ups and downs as a family. We built a family business. Your grandfather was a pillar of the community. But then your uncle got sick. Your grandfather got sick. We've had our setbacks. But through it all, 
no matter what has happened, we've always stuck together as a family. And that ultimately is the family that's known as the church. It is a family of up and down. So when we think about our ancestors from the past, when we read the Old Testament, we learn from their mistakes. We learn from the things they did right. And of course, we think about that in the church in America too. Grave mistakes were made. Beautiful things were done. We honor our mothers and fathers of the faith. But this, so this family is this grand mosaic that stretches back into the past, but also John says this, I see a great multitude that no one can number from every tribe and nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. This is a multinational, multilingual, multi-ethnic, multi-everything kingdom standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And notice this, the 12 tribes of Israel, they don't lose their ethnicity or their culture or the tribe they come from. Their, their cultural particularities are maintained and celebrated because the Bible is not a Gnostic document. What heaven reveals is that you bring your culture into heaven. They are, their tribes and their nations and their different cultural particularities are recognized and glorified and celebrated. So let that image charge your imagination for what it means to be part of the church. When you and I gather, we have to conceptualize the church as this broad family that stretches across place and time and space. And what do they say together? They say salvation belongs to God. Meaning the reason that any of us are here together is due only to the fact that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have saved us. We did not choose to be together. We wouldn't have chosen it. It is God who has brought us here together. And so another worship scene takes place, a praise break, blessing, glory, thanksgiving, honor. Everything belongs to you, God. So what's the application from this? is that we are to seek out unity and diversity. As the church is in heaven, so should the church be on earth. Because Jesus teaches us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so, you know, I can't talk about Revelation 7 without talking about the cross-cultural identity of the church. This unity in diversity, as we say here at Mosaic. This grand mosaic that is so often seen and quoted from this passage. It's a very popular idea today. It, to use Twitter language, it is very, it's trending. Erwin Entz said, you know, Reverend Dr. Erwin Entz, one of our pastors in the Grace DC Network, he, was, he, he shared this quote in an article. He said that the image of God that is shared among God's image bearers, it is much too rich to be fully realized in a single human being or a single type of human being, however, rich, however richly gifted that human being may be. It can only be somewhat unfolded. In the depths and riches in a humanity counting billions of members. Only humanity in its entirety. As one complete organism, only it is the fully finished image of God. And what we take from this passage is that if we are worshiping by ourselves, or worshiping in a homogenous group of people, we are not getting more of God, we're getting less of God. If we worship in a diverse community, we are seeing the diversity of God's image in each of the image bearers, young and old, rich and poor, male and female, all ethnicities. The more diverse of a picture of God's image bearers you have, the more diverse of a picture of God you have. And so that's why we worship in a variety of languages and styles and traditions, because we want to get more of God, not less of God. And we are to be a signpost to the watching world that 
something amazing is happening in the church. And yet, I say all of that, and it is beautiful, and I believe it. I believe in the cross-cultural ministry in the church. But you, if you're anything like me, if you've trod this ground for a while, you know how difficult it is. There is much suffering. There's much confusion. There's much patience to be required when a diverse group of people get together. Think about your own families, how much time and patience that takes uh, just to relate to your brothers and your sisters and your aunts and uncles. So it is with the church, which is an even more diverse group of people who are polluted by sin, who need to forgive one another and bear patiently with one another. Well, this just sounds like the oscillating family narrative. There are ups and downs in this world of cross-cultural ministry. But I don't think this is a time to abandon this vision and say it's not worth the effort. Because we live in as divisive of times as ever in this country. And so it's going to be even harder to fight for the unity that we should see in the church. So we are called in our baptism to descend with Jesus into pain and suffering. And part of that is living together as a community. It will require sacrifice. It will require pain. Reconciliation does not come without truth-telling and confrontation and pain and forgiveness. But that is the vision of Revelation 7 that we seek after, a new family, a new kind of family. We have to bring about a community that works for the good of one another so that each one can say, I belong here. I, in some holy way, can be myself here. I don't have to put on a mask, a show. I don't have to leave my culture at the door. I can talk how I talk anywhere in here, and that's okay. And that's not true for everyone here. We have to grow into this kind of community. But notice that this community in Revelation 7, they do share one definite thing in common. Their robes. Their white robes. And John has this funny exchange, and he says, One of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Well, I don't know, sir, you know. And he said, They are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so here's what we, here's what we see when we, when we hear salvation belongs to God, is that the Lamb's blood has paid the price for each of these new family members to come in. We read last week, by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We find our grounding for unity at the foot of the cross at Calvary's Hill. Out of our understanding of God's grace comes the possibility for unity because grace destroys our pride. It destroys our prides which ultimately lead to all kinds of division and disunity. And grace brings about humility to be able to live together, to be able to ask, where have I wronged you? Because I probably have. To be able to assume that we need God's grace for our unity together. And so for these who have suffered, who are coming out of the great tribulation, what do they receive together? Lastly, they receive a message. The message. They are comforted by scripture from a quotation directly from Isaiah 49. When it says, Therefore they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Gosh, one of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture. 
And so this, this beautiful reassurance is a glimpse of the present relief in heaven from those coming out of the suffering and the future relief for the worship of the church here on earth. It's a balm for the present. To, the, to know that those who suffer now will one day, day and night, be sheltered in God's presence. They will be fed by him. They will no longer cry tears of pain. And the, the fascinating thing is in our text that the, those suffering bring their tears into heaven. God somehow acknowledges their pain, dignifies their pain. They aren't just wiped clean of their pain uh, without acknowledging it first and it being healed by Jesus himself. And isn't that beautiful? Isn't it so wonderful that our God is so high and holy and yet meek and lowly that the one who sits on the throne wipes tears from his children's faces? Man. So the suffering that we are to experience in the now is relativized by the then. By the then. How do we know how to live as holy ones and witnesses? How are we consecrated as God's holy people? We are given the message, the scripture, the Bible. The believers in Revelation are given this encouragement straight from the scripture, but also the whole book of Revelation is scripture. If you go back to the beginning in Revelation 2 or 3, when Jesus is giving his challenging message to the church or his comforting message to the church, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Sometimes the scriptures that we are given make us weep for their vision of comfort and beauty, such as this quotation here. Sometimes the scriptures slap us upside the head. Sometimes the scriptures wound us so that they can heal us. They discipline us. They chasten us. They always shape and they mold us. And I do say so, us, because the preacher has to sit with the words all week before the preacher preaches them to you. Remember what Scripture teaches about itself, that all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Teaching and training and correcting. This is language of stretching and learning, being able to be confronted and corrected. It corrects and it comforts, but it also confronts. Uh, Giorgio was the pastor I used to work under in, in North Carolina, and he had planted a church with Pastor Howard Brown in Charlotte, who's still pastoring, and says to his church once a year, uh, or probably more than once a year, if you don't want to leave this church at least once a year, then the pastor's not doing their job. <laughs> Sometimes the scriptures cut us so that they can heal us and rebuild us. Now, pastors are fallible too, all right? We need to be held accountable to the scripture. So we as a family who are unified to this grand mosaic from the past and the present and all over the world, we are given this message. And so we commit ourselves to tell the family stories. We commit ourselves to the scriptures. We commit ourselves to know God's word. And we submit ourselves to this word. We don't trust our own instincts. We don't trust our own judgment because we are not pure or good enough. We weigh our desires and our thoughts and our instincts together as a community community bound up by scripture. So this mark and this mosaic and this message, how does it affect our witness in the world? First, we are to have a witness as one uncommon family united in Christ. We don't orient towards our preferences or our definition of normal when we think about the church. We instead orient ourselves as being part of this one diverse group of people who finds our unity in our baptism and in our unity in Christ. As uh, Lisa said in her prayer today, that they will know you are Christians by your love. So we have to share grace 
with one another, to bear up with one another, and put, to display a witness of love to a watching world. And secondly, how does this affect our witness? We are called to be martyrs for Jesus, faithful witnesses. But we have to name this, uh, that for Christians, especially historically majority culture Christians in America, we have, we have been relatively uh, comfortable in this country. It's pretty easy. Now, for the history of the black church in America, it's a different story. Many of them have suffered and been martyred for their witness to Jesus and his kingdom. But for majority culture Christians, we have often had power on our side. Power has often been wed to our faith, and so there is religious freedom here. And so there are two approaches when we recognize this. We say either, some say, thank you, God, for the providence of being in a place where I can freely worship. Amen? And some say that maybe that we aren't suffering enough because we have compromised our faith. And that's what the book of Revelation, it confronts churches that, that have compromised their faith to idols and to empire. Have we not suffered because we haven't resisted enough to sin and greed and materialism and racism? Jesus promises a life of hardship to his people. Have we not taken up our cross? And I think both of these are true. We can say, thank you, God, for living in a land where I have freedom to worship you, but also where do I need to resist the spirit of the age more and follow you to be a faithful martyr in my time and my place? How can I be more faithful? We are to bear witness. We are to be martyrs, being shaped by the scripture, being shaped by this community. But here's the thing. We are not going to follow our script perfectly. We're going to forget our lines or pretend we don't know them. We're going to miss our cues. We're going to struggle and fail as a family. And we need Jesus. And when we're introduced to Jesus at the beginning of the book, in Revelation 1, verse 5, what do you think he is called? Jesus is called the faithful martyr, the faithful witness. He is the one who bore perfect witness to his Father in utter faithfulness that he fulfilled our debt of sin on our behalf and paid it all, that he has resisted evil and idolatry and the devil himself all the way to shedding his blood on the cross. And so we follow our faithful, perfect witness as we seek to worship and witness God and the Lamb on earth now, and as we join in heaven even today and say salvation belongs to God. This is the family. Amen.